0: We are
1: Encountering Silence.
0: Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you.
2: Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world.
1: O Tuma is a poet, theologian, and conflict mediator. He harnesses the ways of language and captivates the imagination of religion into his numerous avenues of work. He is the poet laureate and current theologian and residence of the On Being Project and hosts the newly released podcast titled Poetry Unbound. He was the former leader of the, of Corrie Mila, Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organization. His books include two volumes of poetry a daily prayer book, and a memoir titled In the Shelter, Finding a Home in the World. I first came across Padraig's work a few years ago when he was on the On Being podcast with Krista Tippett. In the interview, he spoke to the power of language and words, saying, we infuse words with a sense of who we are. You're not just saying a word, you're communicating something that feels like your soul, and it might even be your soul. One of my favorite poems of Padraig's is titled The Facts of Life a poem which recognizes the human experience, but continues to call us to the great task of love. And in another poem, titled How to Be Alone, he reminds us, there is a you telling you another story of you. Listen to her. Padraig, it is a delight and honor to have you join us on the podcast. Welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you
3: very much. It's lovely to be with you all.
1: We often love to begin by asking our guests about an origin story of encountering silence in their own lives. Um, would you mind stirring, sharing a story with us, perhaps from childhood or any time in which silence began to come alive for you in a new way?
3: Um, as a teenager, um, I had a ritual of taking a long walk every night. And we, uh, I grew up in the countryside, and so uh, it was there was no streetlights. And so i walk for, I don't know, an hour. It was a short walk, maybe an hour and a half. Um, and that became more and more important as the uh, years went by. Sometimes during the day, sometimes at night, there was some old graveyards that could go to see. There was an old Martello Tower nearby. And um, there was a place where we lived near an estuary. And so when the, when the tide was in, I, I loved to sit on a particular wall because you could get the smell and the taste of salt water on your lips. So that was very important. I love
1: that. I love that. And how have you found silence to be a part or is it a part of your writing practice?
3: I was thinking about this in preparation for this. I suppose I do write in silence. I mean, I wouldn't have music playing or anything like that. Um, and I, I do think of writing poetry or writing prose as a very, um, as, a, as an experience in solitude. And so there is an accompaniment of silence in that. But while it's physically and I Outwardly silent, internally you're listening to something, and there's different parts of you speaking to each other, different parts of your life speaking to each other, and different gods speaking as well while you're while you're writing. You know, gods of revenge, gods of desire, gods of lust, gods of um, transcendence. All of those all of those powers are speaking. So while it is outwardly silent, as in I'm not making much noise, inwardly it feels like a small community of people and <laughs> gods.
0: Do you have a time where you recall where silence became a part of worship, prayer, opening up to transcendence or something? Uh, is there a specific time where that has happened, or has that always been there, or has that never been part of your practice?
3: Um. So, I mean, I'm Catholic, and I grew up Catholic in a very Catholic country, and so there always have been moments of silence taken, um, opening up with something, closing something in the middle of the Mass, Do you know, when the prayers of intercession and in Mass, it would be uh, 99% regular at that, at the end of the um, prayers of the faithful, as they'd be called, they say, you know, now we pray for the desires of our own hearts, and there'd be, I don't know, half a minute of silence, maybe, and... Lord hear us, Lord gracious, and hear us At the end of that, so there's little pockets of silence the whole way throughout. Um, but I can, I certainly know of times when um, a deep sense of silence and a deep practice of silence has has taken deeper steps. But there, were, there never was a time when it, when I was um, not aware of silence as part of a prayer or meditative practice. I, I was in the charismatic world of prayer for a very long time which is not necessarily known for great amounts of science I remember one time being at this youth camp I was on staff for it Um, I was in the kitchen cooking you know masses of food for 250 young people God almighty I should think of the quality of the food I mean I wasn't the only one cooking as a lot of us but there was a prayer tent at this youth camp and I went down um, one evening um, covered in grease and sweat probably And um, sat inside this prayer tent, which was like a chapel tent, I suppose. And um, I was taken somewhere in my imagination, somewhere quiet. It felt like a hallowed space at the bottom of a well where there was a small amount of pure water in the corner and where I was at once both alone and entirely composed. And I remember the, the feeling of being there was almost physical. And in fact, it, w- it was physical, it wasn't almost physical. I knew in my body that I had gone somewhere. And that memory um, stays with me still. I mean, that's uh, mm. almost 25 years ago now, I'd say, but um, it, it does stay with me as, as those moments when um, transcendence and descendance can happen at the same time. I felt at once both lifted up as well as um, set down into the deep ground of myself and of the earth.
1: I love this bodily listening that you're addressing. Um, And in your memoir, In the Shelter, you write, when we are in a moment of courage, whether we call that God's voice or indigenous bravery, it is the body that tells us a deep truth. It is the body that speaks to us. And it is from the body that courage comes. Mm. And you also write in uh, How to Be Alone, you, you remind us, you say, take your hand and place it someplace upon your body and listen to the community of madness that you are. You are such an interesting conversation. You belong here. And I just love that, kind of that comparison that we're making right now between this listening, this deep listening and silence and this bodily knowing. Could you speak a little bit to the, the power and importance of embodiment for you within your work and, and just how you found wisdom in that?
3: I remember once years ago, there was some sports panel on and I was watching um, somebody do ice skating. I don't know who it was, a figure skater, African-American sports person. And um, I was watching her and realizing that when we think of her, that we think of her body. We think of her embodiment. We think of what she's doing with her body. She's not being celebrated. Um, for what she's thinking (laughs) she's Mm -hmm. the sense of herself is what she's able to do and as a kind of a wordy person all my life I was aware to think that I tend to define myself by what's going on inside me and yet I was watching her magnificence and thinking of her embodiment And, and that was an intellectual conversion I think for me to think mm. about how it is that what does the physical embodiment, what's the intelligence of physical embodiment, what's the knowing of that, what's the practice of that. And then, um, as years went by, I mean, I, as years went by, I became more and more interested in etymology and less and less embarrassed about my interest in etymology. I love the <laughs> um, history of words, I love what they can mean, I love the, the hidden corners at the heart of words. And so, words like spirituality, which seem to be so disembodied, which seem to be so removed from the aspect of, um, of 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 embodiment. When you look at the word spirit coming from spirare in Latin, meaning breath, What what is more physical than breath? What is more embodied than breath? If I don't breathe, I die. Um, part of the reason why I was late today for the interview is I had to go to the doctor because for a renewed asthma medication, I've got bad asthma. And so I am um, I always know that there's something very powerful about the experience of suffocating. <laughs> I've experienced that. <laughs> and suffocating is one of the most serious embodiments that you can look at and dangerous, threatening and arresting. And so I, I think of that the deepest spiritual practices are the deepest physical practices and that the deepest practices of silence are an embodied practice. And whatever tradition you're in, it doesn't really matter. I think of a word powerful within the Christianities that I've tried to inhabit over the years: incarnation. And that sounds like a big abstract word, but the word "carne" in the middle of that comes from the Latin for meat. So to be to be in the meat of oneself, I think that is um, a, a powerful truth that you find at the heart of all practices of anything to do with virtue: is that you have to practice it in your body. You have to do something with it. You have to use the meat of your brain as well as the meat of your heart and the meat of your body to respond.
2: Your poetry, of course, I scanned it looking for the silences in your poetry. And what I was fascinated by was that you always do have that kind of embodied way of facing into silence. Your silence almost always seems to be tied in with listening. And so I'm just going to share one or two lines that, that really jumped out at me. And, and the first one, your poem, hopes Soft Heather, from readings from the Book of Exile, you write, There are silent presences, watching those asleep and those awake, hearing all those needs, you daren't pray aloud. And you're, you're inserting this into this very evocative description of your mother's Wednesday night prayer group. And and the ladies kind of taking a snooze in the midst of this, you know, this really kind of charming kind of description. And then and then you drop into this silence and you drop into the the not daring to pray aloud, kind of keeping these words hidden for whatever reason. And then the other one that really leapt out at me from sorry for your troubles, after the war. Mm. After the war, you write, after the war, there was silence and we heard things our violence could not end. What a provocative statement there. I I don't really have a question. I think I'm I'm kind of being a fanboy here and just (laughs) expressing my my appreciation for the depth of of what you've written here. I guess what I'm curious about, these silent presences that you wrote in Host Soft Heather, does that have anything to do with the gods that are in conversation with you? And I'm also wondering what... All this has to do with conflict resolution, because I know that's an important part of your story as well.
3: Uh, I mean, in the whole Salt Heather poem, uh, my mom used to go to this mad rosary meeting, which took place in a room that had like a lit fire, uh, a radiator plugged in and a gas fire as well. It was like a cross between Bikram yoga and a seance. And so (laughs) inevitably, anybody at night that would fall asleep, it was like being in a sauna. Anyway, there was a woman there who was a great friend of my mother's who every week would have this kind of discernment as to what saint or other was present with us. So I didn't go that often, but I have been a few times. And so in the middle of your prayer, praying the rosary, um, in the middle of the rosary, um, Eileen would say something like, Saint Joseph is here! And you'd be like, oh God, where is he? Uh, And so, um, I mean, Saint Joseph never spoke for himself because Eileen spoke for Saint Joseph quite comprehensively. (laughs) um, was there it, was it really, knocking
2: on the table or anything?
3: <laughs> no, no, no. Nothing like that. It was always very benevolent. But I suppose as I thought about it, I wondered about the silent presences there. And then I thought about, what else is silent there? You know, people would say a few words, but, oh, you know, can, when we offer this decade of the Rosemary, can we say it for my nephew who's sick or for my niece who's Doing examinations in engineering or whatever, but I thought, what are the other, what are the other things that people can't say? Maybe because they'd be worried that other people heard it, or worried that God heard it, or worried that they'd hear it. To, to name something in public, and can give it um, reality that sometimes you don't want it to have. And and saying something is a physical experience too. Words are not disembodied. You need your vocal cords, you need your mouth, you need air, you need your lungs to to say. To speak out loud. So I suppose that's what I was thinking with that, that. That there that silence has its own power and silence can be a way of avoiding. But I suppose the hope within any kind of practice of prayer in any tradition is that any silence that we're holding is also being beheld. And there's some there's something or someone or some some way of that mystery that we call God that beholds us in the silence that we might be holding for ourselves. And then I think uh, when it comes to conflict resolution, particularly thinking about that poem after the war, I I think mostly of conflict as the escalating of volume, because so much conflict is literally the escalated volume, people shouting, people shouting. And then you can see it on Twitter too, while people mightn't be talking to each other, you just see snap back, forth, back, forth, back, forth, where you hear it on the radio, where you have somebody who's just bringing two or three or four people into the performance of really predictable disagreements with each other, and it gets loud, and e- e- intransigence deepens, and the incapacity for people to meet in any kind of sense of silence with each other or silence with themselves happens. And I think that there is something about the violence of those encounters that needs to be tempered with the practice of silence. And I don't mean that toward leading to any kind of religious framework. I mean simply to think, what does it mean to be silent with yourself, and that. Uh, conflict resolution isn't about being all nicey-nice. It is about the deep confrontation that silence has, and that silence has its own intelligences and wisdoms and um, confrontations also.
1: This conversation on Encountering Silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us.
0: And your response here reminds me, uh, again, in your collection, Sorry for Your Troubles, the pedagogy of conflict. I mean, the the line that kills me is the opening line, because I, I almost, before I even read the rest of it, I know where it's going. When I was a child, I learned to lie. And then you play out the whole thing about family and friends and, and how the world teaches us to basically avoid conflict by lying to ourselves, and then that struggle, that whole struggle there. So um, as you're describing here this description of embodiment, language, and then prayer and, and opening up these spaces, I'm just curious about how we can use good theology, good spirituality to learn not to lie. Because I, I've even been in places where the the religion, the spirituality, the prayers, the theology is more lying, and uh-huh. and so I I know it's a really broad, deep question, but I'm kind of curious because of the work you do and how powerfully you're speaking to us about embodiment. That if you have any kind of just subtle insights in the directions we could go about overcoming theological lies.
1: I have a way maybe we could
0: yeah, please. go with it. Yeah, and, please.
1: Unless you have, Padraig, something that's come up for you. Well, I'm thinking a lot of times in this podcast, we talk about toxic silence mm. and the ways in which we silence people. Mm. Um, that's good. It's so a silencing and oppression and things like this. Mm. You know, the great Audre Lorde, your silences will not protect you. And in 2016, Padraig, you did a TEDx talk where you discussed the power of story and story as both shelter and shadow and you know in a world where bad theology literally kills people in particular I'm thinking of LGBTQ people given your experience with reparative therapy that you've talked about in several interviews and thank you for sharing that for as a queer woman I'm finding more and more how visibility helps us save each other and sometimes theologically and sometimes literally. And so maybe we could talk more about your thoughts on toxic silence mm-hmm. and silencing, and how that corrupts theology.
3: I mean, when when silence is imposed on you, this is very straightforward to say. When silence is imposed on you, it is the devoicing of a person, mm-hmm. and the devoicing mm-hmm. of a person um, removes from them the public recognition of their capacity to name what's true and what's going on. And I think that there has always been a recognition that the practice of naming things is what we call sacred in the human experience. The first poets who wrote what we now call Genesis 1 and 2 uh, imagined a God who named things, and that by naming things, things come into being. And if they imagined that in the God, they must have imagined that in themselves too, because they named something by doing that. And so I think when a person is in a circumstance where their the dignity of their life is not allowed to be named, well, then there is something of death in that. Um, and it's a foretaste of death in a terrible way, and a foretaste of annihilation, and a foretaste, a foretaste of um, of being unmade, <laughs> and uh, descending into a world of unmade, and that's a terrible thing. We all know we're going to die, but we even need to speak about that. But there's something about having that forced upon you that that's a, a terrible degradation of the human spirit. Um, For years, like a friend of mine, I just saw him this morning, actually, Greg, he was the first person, I think I was 30 or 31, he was the first person to say to me, are you seeing anyone? And I cried. Nobody had ever asked me that. He didn't want the big detail. And it wasn't a, you know, are you doing are going to go to hell or, you know, all these all terrible things that I've been part of in my 20s. He was just asking casually. And if the answer had been yes, which it wasn't at that stage, but had it been, it wasn't like he wanted to talk about it at great length. He just was like, see anyone? Yeah, no, all going okay, great. You know, what are you reading? <laughs> and the casual way within which what it felt like to have made changes in my life, I moved away from working for an organisation, would have been a threat to have spoken about any romantic life. And the, I couldn't believe the impact of... Silencing myself in that way, where I had the freedom to speak, it wasn't necessarily that I had things to say. I wasn't saying anyone, but it was the freedom to speak was um, without threat was the was the moving thing. And that's, I mean, I, I lived through difficult circumstances, but in comparison to many others, they are mild. And I think of other people who live in perpetual silence, where their lives, their livelihood, their, their sense of safety, where they live are going to be denied, or people who it isn't even about speaking, it's about being, it's about existing, where people see them and, and see that they wish for that, their embodied experience to be denied and to be silenced, even as physicality and its presentation. And I think um, we don't need a hell when we can create such powerful hells.
0: I'm just struck by your answer there that, uh, as you said before, about how we think spirituality is not embodied, and it seems to me that you're talking here. You said voice, mm. and in my head, I naturally think of voice in a very disembodied way. And mm. your answer suggests that a, a true voice is deeply embodied.
3: Well, you can't speak. You can't. You can't have a voice without using your body. Right. Yeah. I mean. Right. I, I don't like when people speak about the head heart thing. Oh, you know, my head says this, my heart says that. Mm. I mean, none of those things function opposite, uh, apart from each other. You know, the head, the brain wouldn't function without the heart. The heart you know, would function without a brain. Or maybe it would, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. <laughs> Good, at Good at poems, bad at science. But you know what I'm saying. The, there's this idea that we can separate out into just these two things. What are my lungs saying? What's my kidneys saying, for God's sake? What are my bowels saying? How do we speak about the physicality of the human experience in recognising these things? And I, I think that there's something really important to recognise that we are physical beings. And that sometimes certain spiritualities, by being very um, hereafter-minded, have ignored the the dignity and power of the here. And the dignity and power of the here is always in the space of the body. Um, and I think that might be where we are called to pay most attention of holiness, if we can use that word, to look at the holiness of the here. Because um, otherwise, when we begin to remove the possibility of virtue from the fi- the lived reality of the people um, all around us, well, then I think we can begin to have theologies and ideologies that um, can sacrifice the body for the sake of the pure mind. And I think that's a deeply dangerous and disingenuous thing to make such binary divisions.
0: Mm.
2: This is just, also once again, responding to something you've written. Padraig, and it comes from in the shelter, and it's really at the very beginning where you're talking about uh, spending some time in taze and the corporate silence of the of the monastery, and you, you're kind of this humorous moment when one of the brothers says to you, don't spend too much of your time reading, and then you turn around and read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, <laughs> in, in, in in a week's time. And then you talk a little bit about that, but then, uh, and, and I'm going to read read this, this paragraph that just really spoke to me. I was, in a sense, wanting to escape a religious belief that said I shouldn't be ill, I couldn't be gay, and I couldn't go on. And so in a monastery surrounded by rules, silence, and four-part harmonies, I was finding myself in some kind of prison I did what made most sense at the time. I turned to myth. Myth is, after all, what is more than true. And you, and you had written a little bit about Tolkien talking about myth as a form of escape and kind of a, a sacred form of escape. And so I'm as, as somebody who loves Tolkien and somebody who's fascinated by by myth and story as really central to finding meaning in life, I love this juxtaposition between kind of the the corporate silence of the the cloister and you actually finding refuge in, in the myth. And so I'm curious if you could speak to, especially your life as a poet, as a writer, how you experience kind
3: of the dance between language and silence, well, first of all, I mean, just regarding that passage, I do love Teze. I think Teze is an extraordinary witness to hope and a beautiful manifestation of, from a, a European point of view, about what's possible for uh, a continent that has known so much division over so many centuries and caused so much hell. Um, I think Teze as a place of pilgrimage, pilgrimage to and pilgrimage from their monasteries that have gone around the world are never there to impose any form of Christianity there. Their monasteries are there to bear witness and to, to seek solidarity and support so and then lord of the rings uh, i've read it 15 times i am a big fan of lord of the rings and each time i'd read it i'd find it due to be that something would change in me that i'd have a different question in me while i was reading it and would be looking for something and find i find it i mean it's got limitations of course as every myth does but it's really powerful <laughs> i think one of the reasons I'm sometimes embarrassed by prose and I'm sometimes, I'm certainly embarrassed by something that seeks to try to lay out a a step-by-step biography of something because I find something embarrassing about the idea that language could ever grasp all of the things that are happening in any one moment and I think that's why I'm so drawn to poetry because there is so much empty space on the page of a poem. There is space between the title and the line, there's space between lines. There's the the line break. Not with all poems. Some poems take up a lot of space on the page. Or well, the poem poems don't. Even with ones that take up a lot of space, there's a a recognition that you're not thinking that words can be sufficient to say the everything, but that all they need to do is to say the something here. And that somehow the something in conversation with the everything unsaid, is the space where the poem is created. So the poem itself is creating a conversation between what is and what is said. And then the poem is a conversation between the page and the reader, between the writer and the and the page as well. So there's so many spaces and gaps between what a poem is imagined to be and then the experience of it in the writing of it, in the publishing of it, in the reading of it, in the discussion. I I like that because I I feel awkward imagining that there could be enough that's sufficient. I like gaps. I, I find you know, they, uh, the Poetry Unbound episode that's going to go out later on this week is a poem from um, Alison Funk called The Prodigal's Mother Speaks to God. And it's this magnificent imagination about a great gap in the parable that has been so um, so formative for so many. And in it, like she has this line when it says, When he came back for a second time, it was not so easy to forgive. His robe stained with wines, so his sandals broken, it was not so easy to forgive. By then his father was long gone himself, leaving me with my other son, sullen one, whose anger was the instrument he tuned from Good Morning on. What a magnificent. Bang. Um, and so she goes into Alison Funk, the poet, goes into this imagined conversation between the mother of the prodigal and the god. And like that great throwaway line, by then his father was long gone himself. What does that mean? Was he dead? Have he left? that something else happened? We don't know. And she Opens up a small gap and then suddenly an entire parable parable becomes um, defamiliarized and refamiliarized on an entirely different landscape and place human experience. So I find that so consoling and so comforting and so enlivening to think this isn't about do you believe this way or that way about a poem? or about a piece of writing. This is to say, how can we celebrate the vast spectrum of possible interpretations that might be present here? And how do we tune that instrument? How do we hold that instrument for today in conversation? What it is that the person who's reading it needs, what it is that the community is reading it, is um, seeking comfort for and confrontation for.
1: I love that reflection because it reminds me of this relationship between theologian and poet, which is a part of who you are, and that both demand this prophetic imagination that each is in conversation with each other to continue to tap into that infinite spaciousness so that it can hold all of us. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's really beautiful. This concludes part one of a two-part episode. Stick with us next week when we hear part two. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com.
0: I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl
2: McComan. My website is CarlMcCollman.com
1: please visit the podcast website at encounteringsilence.com. There, you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit patreon.com slash encounteringsilence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world.